a series of, of uh, programs years ago now, David Niven was part of them, so it was years ago, where they were giving some of the secrets of the um, magicians, the clever conjurers, really, that's what they were talking about. And he said, here's a simple one, he said, and you just got a group of people on an, of an audience out onto the stage, about a dozen people, and he said, here's a simple one, he said, he just took a piece of paper in his hand, he just went like that, and, and they went, my goodness. He said, look closer, and he did it again and again and again, but the camera then panned back and back and back. And the audience in the, the theatre were laughing their heads off because all he was doing was <laughs> over his shoulder. There was a pile of paper appearing over his shoulder. But of course they were watching his hands. And the closer they got to his hands, the more certain they were to miss the quick movement as you focus on things. So what are you missing? Sometimes you can be so focused on the small things of life that you miss the big thing was happening right in front of you. Luke 24, verse 13. This is a story of the resurrection as far as Luke's concerned. And he telescopes a lot of stuff and makes it sound as if it's one day between the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension. And he puts it all into one chapter. He knows it isn't one day. Of course, he's the one who tells us it's 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension. But he's going to telescope it all in this little passage. And we're going to start reading verse 13 where we have on that same day two of them were going to a village called Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem and they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other Jesus himself came up and walked along with them but they were kept from recognizing him and you probably remember we're looking at a number of different questions God asks us. Here's the question for this morning. He asks them what are you discussing together as you walk along? That's his question. What are you talking about? And they don't recognize who it is. What are you discussing as, together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? He says, as if he didn't know. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. 
They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It's true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. When Jesus earlier on was uh, discussing with his disciples people's reaction to the word of God, he quoted from Isaiah 6, which says this, They may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, ever hearing, but never understanding. So it's possible to see, but not to perceive, to hear, but not to understand, to look, but not actually to see anything. No wonder then that Jesus invites his audiences so often by saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And in a world full of aromas, sensations, sounds, experiences, we can become jaded to those and fail to notice their effect. If you spend a little time with a small child, you'll have your eyes widened opened again to see things like they see them for the first time, things that you've got very used to. When was the last time you went outside, looked up at the heavens, and burst out in song like David in Psalm 8? When was the last time you looked and saw the glory of God in the heavens above? We don't have time, do we? Or we see them and we see them again and we've seen them before. So take time to look around. And it's so possible to be looking like these two disciples are looking, two anonymous disciples, well, Cleopas and another. They're so focused in on themselves, they don't even know who's walking along beside them. They are so focused in on themselves. And their downright ordinariness of life provides a perfect backdrop. See, they need to see Jesus. Three times in this chapter, Luke tells us that Jesus opened something. In verse 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. In verse 32, he opens the scriptures to them. And in verse 45, he opens their minds so they could understand. So Cleopas and his companion, we never hear about them any other time, but clearly there were more than just the 12 apostles. Of course, the 12 apostles are now down to 11 because Judas has left. But there's plenty others. There's some women who followed him from Galilee. They've already been to the tomb. So there's the 11 plus the women. And of course plus others. Cleopas. Is it his wife he's walking with? Doesn't say, does it? Tantalizing, isn't it? You get the names and descriptions of some people and tantalizingly not others. So it's Cleopas plus another. Could be his wife, couldn't it? And uh, they know him well because he's they're part of the... Uh, discipleship band and Luke will tell us in Acts chapter 10 that Jesus did not appear willy-nilly to everybody he only appeared specifically to people he had decided beforehand to appear to people who knew him already but as they as he falls in beside them they were kept from recognizing him I wonder why that is you know what it seems to me you can take from that verse? That there are times this last week perhaps when you felt bereft of God and he was closer to you if you only did know it. Jesus, the one they long for, is walking alongside them, talking to them, and they don't even know he's there. Talk about a wrong perception. 
perspective on life. And as Jesus opens a conversation with his question, what are you talking about? What are you discussing together as you walk along? Luke tells us all, they stood still, their faces downcast. It tells us everything about them. They're absorbed in their own small world. They are hugely disappointed. God has let them down, if you're allowed to say that quietly. That's how they feel. We've been let down. We had hoped, they will say. We had hoped that he was the one to save Israel, but he didn't. That's the outcome of their sentence. But he didn't. They didn't say that, but that's what they mean, don't they? We were let down. He led us up the garden path. He led us to this point where we had hope that he would be the one. Well, how could he be? Because he died. And that's the end of that. They are in despair. Because there's nothing worse than having hopes raised to be dashed. And they're just making their way back to Emmaus. Back to normal life again. Back to the old way of doing things. Back to the old routine where the Romans are in charge and there's nothing going to change here then. That's how they feel about it. And there's Jesus walking along beside them. And they don't recognize him. I think they don't recognize him because he wants to hear what's on their heart. If he turned up and said, hi guys, it's me, then they wouldn't have owned up to what they were thinking about, would they? They would have been embarrassed to do that. But he's willing to listen to what is on, really on their hearts. You can tell the Lord anything you know, because he knows anyway. Nothing is hidden from you. Do you find yourself sometimes pretending that everything's okay when you talk to the Lord, when it isn't? And it's kind of as if he waits patiently and says, Charles, I will wait until you finish this nonsense you're talking about and then own up to what's really happening in your life, because I'm aware of it anyway. But we have this kind of way of pretending, don't we? We do it with each other, which is probably a saving grace with each other, because we do not want to hear each other's offloading heavyweight stuff all the time, do we? But we're deluding ourselves and we think the Lord doesn't. He actually does. So their dream is a good one, held by thousands over hundreds of years, that a Messiah would come to rescue Israel. That's what they're looking for, and they had hoped that he would be the one. Could he be the one? But apparently not, because the Messiah would not die, would he? That's a contradiction in terms. The Messiah wouldn't die, he would kill the others. He would be the victor. He would not be the vanquished. But interestingly, did you notice that it wasn't in the Bible study that warned their hearts that they recognized who he was and came to this new understanding, but it was in the breaking of bread. And Luke uses words he's used before. Verse 30, he was at the table and he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them. Precisely the same words that he used in the feeding of the 5,000 took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them. And the same words that he used at the Last Supper. Took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them. That's the moment when they recognized who he was. Now the timing of the Last Supper is a very interesting one because the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John don't agree. <coughs> Matthew, Mark, and Luke give the impression that the Last Supper is on the moment of the Passover. But John, in his chronology, has Jesus having the Last Supper the day before, so when he's on the cross, it coincides with the Passover. Well, there's a number of ways you can 
square that circle, but here's one way, that John's timing is right. So that the imagery is actually fulfilled with Jesus on the cross. But put it this way, so they celebrated the Passover the night before Passover. If they had celebrated Passover the night before Passover, there would not have been a Passover lamb. Now that's not just to say the main course was missing. The main significance of the meal was missing. So can you understand how the disciples would have understood it? They're having the Passover meal without the lamb. And this is the most important time in Jewish life. And suddenly Jesus, in the midst of this meal that is pregnant with meaning, says, this is my body given for you. This is my blood, because it's the body of the Lamb. And the blood of the Lamb that symbolizes what God did so many years before in Egypt. They were the great significance. And without it, they must have been thinking, well, where is the Lamb? And Jesus says, here is the Lamb. Here is the blood. This is my body given for you. Can you see why they're recognizing? This is so full of meaning, isn't it? Jesus dares to take this most precious meal of a particular nation and invest it with new meaning and purpose. In the epistles, none of the epistle writers quote anything of significance from the Gospels. It's extraordinary. They don't repeat Jesus' teaching. They don't quote from the Sermon on the Mount. They don't repeat his parables or his miracles, except for one passage, which appears actually long before the Gospels were written. And it appears... In 1 Corinthians, chapter 11, which we've already had quoted to us. For I received from the Lord what I also passed unto you. The night, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. It is the only thing the epistle writers quote from the Gospels, which have not yet been written. It will go into them. And it's this action that brings revelation to Cleopas and his companion, suddenly they realize, far from this being the worst moment of their lives, that actually everything has changed. And the one they thought had died is risen again. So far from being an ending, it's a beginning. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. Not to receive a sacrifice, but to be a sacrifice. Not to provide food, but to be our food. His purpose wasn't to announce salvation, but give salvation. Behold, says John in his gospel, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus, having been recognized in them, now opens their minds so they can understand the scriptures. He gives them two Bible studies. One on the road to Emmaus to these two, and one further on to everyone when they're back in Jerusalem. And he explains to the two on the road to Emmaus, to them, what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And that's a key verse. Because you see, they think the story of God's saving plan has come to an end. The Bible is finished. It's written, done, dusted. And that's the end. Little do they know that this is the hinge point of history where suddenly things are going to shoot off into a new direction where God takes up all his promises and makes them yes and amen in Jesus Christ. 
Now, he's not saying here that there's a few proof texts like we get at Christmas, you know, Isaiah 9, verse 6, for us, to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, or Isaiah 7, 14, the virgin will be with child and give birth to a son and we'll call him Emmanuel. He's not talking about that. He's not saying there's one or two proof texts through the Old Testament that speak about me. He says, the story of the Old Testament is all about me. It's all about me. And this is the point that we've been waiting for. So what you see as this great disaster is actually the point at which God's saving plan takes on new energy because from this point on it will be spread across the world. So these two, no wonder their hearts are warmed within them. Do you know what that, when that happens? When someone opens the scriptures and tells you what they really mean. You ever had that? You think, yes, that's what it means. And that's what Jesus said, all that you know is about me. Dead? I'm not dead, I'm alive. And death has no more hold on me, which means all the promises of God are going to come true in a greater way than you ever knew before. So far from their lives becoming ended, they're on the brink, the cusp of something new and great. No wonder they run back the seven or eight miles back to Jerusalem. They can't wait to get back and tell the other guys who've coincide also and tell them stories about Jesus resurrected from the dead. It's wonderful stuff, isn't it? As they join together, he is alive. And suddenly, everything is changed. They're still struggling with it, because when he appears again, have you noticed his appearing and disappearing stuff? Yeah? He appears again, and they really can't believe it, because, well, for joy and amazement. Anyway, he goes through this bit about eating fish. He doesn't need the fish, but he eats the fish anyway, so they know for sure he was around. And he opens all their hearts to understand the scriptures. So he's saying, everything you know points to me. So don't get caught up in your small world. Open your eyes and see. God is doing a great thing. The more we narrow down merely on all that's happening in our lives, we miss the great things that God is doing, don't we? We have to be outward-looking people. Do you sometimes get overwhelmed with what is happening in the world? Thinking, where is it all going? Where is life going? Who's got the answer to it? If we tend to look down and inwards, we're going to miss the things that God is doing. God is still on the throne. God is still working his purpose out as year succeeds to year. Jesus still is the saviour of the world. God still is the sovereign Lord of all of history. He still raises people and brings them down. He still is in charge of kingdoms and princedoms and republics and every other kind of, of uh, human society. And he needs us to look out. So my friends, don't be discouraged. What are you discussing as you walk along? Lord, life is hard. Life is difficult. Life is getting more and more difficult as we go on. Look up and see God is doing great things among us. So what he wants his disciples to grasp is that every covenant that Liz mentioned eventually finds its truth in Jesus. Every truth flows into the river that leads to him. Every promise finds its yes and amen in Christ. Every aspect of God's strategy is focused and filled full in Jesus. And that's still the case today. Jesus still is the hope of the nations. So watch out you don't become so focused, so jaded 
that you miss what God is doing. Can I tell you a little story? In Washington, D.C., Metro Station, 7.51 a.m. So you know it's a true story, don't you? On January the 12th, 2008, in the middle of the rush hour, got the picture? An underground station in a Washington metro station very early in the morning. And he emerged from the metro and positions himself against a wall beside a rubbish bin. And by most measures, he was nondescript, a youngish white man in jeans, a long-sleeved T-shirt, and a Washington Nationals baseball cap. From a small case, he removed a violin. Placing the open case at his feet, he shrewdly threw in a few dollars and pocket change as seed money, swiveled it to face pedestrian traffic, and began to play. And in the next 43 minutes, as a violinist performed six classical pieces, 1,000 people passed by. Each passerby had a quick choice to make, one familiar to commuters in any urban area where the occasional street performer is part of the cityscape. Do you stop and listen, or do you hurry past? So after three minutes, a middle-aged man noticed there was a musician playing. He slowed his pace, stopped for a few seconds, and then hurried on to meet his schedule. Four minutes later, the violinist received his first dollar. A woman threw the money in the till and, without stopping, continued to walk. Six minutes, a young man leaned against the wall to listen to him, then looked at his watch and started to walk again. Ten minutes, and a three-year-old boy stops, but his mother tugs him along hurriedly as a kid stops to look at the violinist. Finally, the mother pushes hard, and the child continues to look, turning his head all the time. Forty-three minutes, the musician played. Only six people stop and stay for a while. About 20 gave him money, but continued to walk by at their normal pace. He collected $32. He finished playing and silence took over. No one noticed, no one applauded, nor was there any recognition. A hundred feet away across the arcade was the lottery line, sometimes five or six people long. They would have had a good view of the busker if they'd just turned round, but no one did. Not in the entire 43 minutes. They just shuffled forward towards that machine, spitting out numbers. Eyes on the prize. This is a real story. No one knew it, but the violinist was Joshua Bell, one of the highest acclaimed musicians in the world. He was playing some of the most intricate pieces ever written for a violin, with a violin valued at $3.5 million. Two days earlier, Joshua Bell had sold out a theatre in Boston where the ordinary seats cost $100. Joshua Bell, playing incognito in the metro station, was organised by the Washington Post as part of a social experiment about perception, tastes and people's priorities. But one possible conclusion reached from this experiment could be if we don't have time to stop and listen to one of the best musicians in the world playing some of the finest music ever written in the world with one of the most beautiful instruments in the world, what else are we missing? As it happens, exactly one person recognized Bell, and she didn't arrive until near, very near the end. For Stacy Furukawa, there was no doubt. She doesn't know much about classical music, but she had been in the audience three weeks earlier at Bell's free concert at the Library of Concert. Congress. And here he was, the international virtuoso, soaring away, begging for money. She had no idea what was going on, but whatever it was, she wasn't going to miss it. So Furukawa positioned herself 10 feet from Bell, front row, centre, and she had a huge grin on her face. The grin and Furukawa remained planted in that spot until the end. It was the most astonishing thing I've ever seen in Washington, Furukawa says. Joshua Bell was standing there playing at rush hour and people were not stopping and not even looking and some were flicking 
quarters at him. Quarters, I wouldn't do that to anybody. I was thinking, what kind of city do I live in where this could happen? My friend Stan, full front center, grinning, looking at the Lord. Don't let it pass by. God is at work doing things. He's closer than you think. More active than we are aware. Doing things. Don't miss it. Just because the way life is. What are we missing? Let me pray. We have enjoyed, Father, celebrating communion this morning and saying thank you for saving us. We've heard of your names from the Old Testament. We've remembered what you did in the New Testament. And we know that you are the same yesterday, today and forever. The one who was at work and is at work will be at work in your world. So as we go into this new week, Lord, we are confident that you are at work where we are. And we join with you, Lord. Put our lives in your hands. Ask that we may have eyes that see and ears that hear. So we may join with you in what you're doing this week. Just show each of us, Lord, what you are doing where we live, that we might join with you in it. To the end, that people might know that there is a God in heaven who sent his son Jesus to bring in the kingdom of God into this needy world. For the glory of your name. Amen.